are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Oh, you guys have my whole entire heart. All of it. I just showed up to be as gen as possible. <laughs> what a relief. What a relief. It's so stressful being anybody else. Anybody else been there? Whew. Okay, well, let's turn to Genesis 22. Uh, Genesis. <laughs> See, you're already getting revelation I didn't have. Okay, well, we're just going to look at a beloved story together today. You ready? Verse 1. Later on, God tested Abraham's faith and obedience. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will point out to you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. So let's just pause here for a second and just put ourselves in this story. You know, I've had this passage on my heart for the last several weeks, and uh, as I was studying it, I read in the commentary that this is the first mention of love in the Bible, and it was a father's love for his son, and if we could just remember the context of Abraham's love for his son Isaac, um, you know, they, they were wildly past the age of childbearing, remember, and Isaac um, was the promise to Sarah and Abraham that through Isaac would come descendants outnumbering the stars in the sky, outnumbering the the sand on the seashore. And uh, you remember Sarah laughed. You know, how, isn't that such a relief, you know? <laughs> and, and, then, and then the Lord was like, why are you laughing? She's like, I didn't laugh. And he's like, you did. You, you did laugh, you know? <laughs> and, and his response was, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And, you know, this, this was what Vanessa was prophesying in song this morning a great big God, a little tiny problem. And when, when impossibility in our life feels laughable compared to the promises in the Bible, the prophetic words over our life, we have to pull back up to these words. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? He, he actually hung the stars in the sky. Could he not put a baby in your womb? He actually created everything out of nothing. He, he didn't get a loan from the bank. He, he didn't need contractors. He did all of this all by himself. Is anything too difficult for him? And, you know, hopelessness 
my favorite definition comes from Wendy Backlund, and she said, hopelessness is only an available option when we write out a God of the impossible. And so the reason it's such a big deal that we never let go of our hope is because we are destined to live a life of the impossible. And if we're truly going to manifest heaven on the earth, we have to have a God that's bigger than our impossibility. And so, you know, the, the story goes on and everything happened that the Lord said would happen because he does not lie. And so Isaac is born to Sarah. And then could you imagine being in Abraham's position and that son, the, the son that the covenant was prophesied, that we, we actually reap the benefits of this promise spoken to Abraham. You know, I'll never forget uh, the most marking prophetic word I've ever received in my life came in one of the darkest seasons of my life from Jesus. Has Jesus ever told you anything that turned your life upside down? The thing about getting a prophetic word from Jesus is he knows everything that you need to hear. And I, I was living in Redding, California and was newly married and um, I was laid out on carpet that had been there since the early 1900s and was sucking it with my tears. So that's how you know how desperate the condition was. And uh, the presence of God blew into my room. And one of the things that he told me was, if I were to break my promise to you, I would have to go all the way back to Abraham and break my promise to him. That we are in a legacy of covenant that has been building for thousands of generations. And for the Lord to break his covenant, his promise, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. He would have to go all the way back to Abraham and break his covenant. And so you could imagine, would anybody else be confused if that God showed up and said, I want you to give me as an offering the son that I prophesied would cause your descendants to outnumber the stars in the sky. And Abraham had something going on on the inside of him that the next morning he rose early. That there was no delay. I guarantee you he did not run this by Sarah. <laughs> There's no way. He mentioned this and said, honey, God talked to me today. And <laughs> the child you bore in your barren womb, impossibly, I'm going to go on a three days journey and I'm going to surrender him as a burnt offering to the Lord. <laughs> and she, she would have said some words that wouldn't have made it in the word of God. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, that was wrong. That was wrong. And he, he, he obeyed the next 
morning. And has, has, has the Lord ever asked you to surrender something that didn't make sense to you? You got saved this morning if that's never happened to you before. And we want to welcome you into the kingdom of heaven. And you better buckle up. Because everything you love is about to go on that altar. And, you know, we're in a new covenant now. Where we don't bring offerings of flesh and blood. That's over. Our battle will never again include harming a person on planet earth, not even an animal. You don't even harm an animal as an offering to the living God anymore. There was one lamb that finished outward physical offerings. So we now carry the same conviction of a, of a sanctified holy life where one God gets all of our offering, but it's entirely invisible. It's invisible. Uh, your worship, Jesus came trumpeting, would no longer be on this mountain or that mountain, but my people will worship in their heart in a spirit of truth. And it's impossible to compare yourself to anybody else in the room to figure out if you're a real worshiper. Because do you remember when uh, Jesus was in the back of the temple and all of these rich Pharisees were bringing up loads of money to the front. And he just sat there unmoved. The person of God was in the room unmoved by an outward expression of offering. And you remember one widow was in the room who had a penny. And she walked that penny up to the offering bucket and Jesus erupted on the insides and said, she just gave more than all the people combined. And, you know, when we compare our offering to the, to the people we're doing life with, to the people in our community, we, we still our ability to treasure a Jesus who's moved by one penny. By one penny. And, and you know, honestly, my feedback, if that widow was a first-year school supernatural ministry student and she would have been like, should I put my last penny, the, the penny that I, I have nothing else to support myself in this offering bucket, I would have been like, no. Nobody here needs that penny. Do not put that penny in the offering. We're going to give you pennies. That's what we're going to do. We're going to have Mike bring you all sorts of stuff that you need. No, and, and, and the person of Jesus wanted her offering. Because, because to, to Jesus, it's always about the heart. It's always about what is going on on the inside of your affection. And so even though we will no longer put, uh, it, it will never, the starting point will never be measuring what you're offering in your outside world. The starting point will always be, what does God see? What is happening on my insides? And so, you know, Abraham 
is an absolute hero and standard in our faith because the son that, that he was promised, the son that he loved, God asked him to walk that son up a hill and offer him to the Lord. And, you know, I could just imagine the thoughts going on in Abraham. It was a three days journey with his boy. And, you know, I just remember, you know, so, so, so many times in my history with the Lord, him asking me for things and I can feel my whole body get tense. You know, like, I didn't know I had a clenched fist here, but clearly I have a clenched fist. And one of those times when I was just learning that every motive of his heart towards me is good. You know, I was young and just making a lot of terrible choices in the type of guys I dated. They mostly spoke marijuana from the time they woke up to the time they went to sleep. And... I just didn't really have any discipleship in that area. And I'm like 15. And my choices were reflecting uh, the, the thoughts I had about myself and what I thought I was worth on the inside of me. And so I remember I was about 15 and I see from a distance this the most stunning vision of a man I had ever seen in my life. And I thought, who is that? And my friend was like, oh, that's Justin Stockman. And he loves God and has never kissed a girl. Those were the two defining attributes that she, like, wait, he loves, I, I didn't know these type of guys existed. Like, where did he crawl out of a hole? Where has he been? Like in a monastery? Did he just emerge back into society? And I thought, I'm going to marry him and have his babies. This is my destiny. And he doesn't even know my name. He doesn't know I exist. I just saw my destiny from afar. And so, really long story made short. Um, we're dating and a little while in, I clearly feel the conviction of the Lord. I want you to, to break up with the guy who loves me who's never kissed a girl. <laughs> like, I thought, this is a huge upgrade from my previous life choices. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if, if you were actually there. Were you there for the whole story? Like, he doesn't smoke marijuana. He loves you. I want you to, to break up with, with that guy. I don't want you to date him. And oh, the anguish, the turmoil, the, the pain of putting on the altar something that I cherished, something that I loved, and um, not having enough history with the Lord yet. It was being written to know that his every motive towards me is good and kind. And this is what we learn in this story is that it is impossible to steward a promise we've been given without putting it on the altar. And, you know, Abraham, Abraham was, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I'm just blown away by, he doesn't even have the Holy Spirit on the inside of him. And he trusted God at this level. And, you know, 
chapters before it was written into history that, you know, remember the story, God pulls him outside and says, Abraham, look up in the sky. Your descendants are going to be more than those stars. And this is the famous line, before the promise has come to be, it says, Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So before the gospel was even made available, Abraham was experiencing a righteousness that came by faith in God. That wasn't even available yet. And yet he was being made right with God because he believed what God had said. And, you know, the best thing to do when a promise manifests in your life and you see an Isaac, you're experiencing an Isaac is to go on a three days journey up a hill. And, you know, I remember when the story finally unfolded that I, I couldn't see and, uh, you know, Justin and I got married and he was fulfilling promises in my life that, you know, I spent my entire childhood pretending to be married and pretending to have a family. Anybody else? I, I know all the men in the room can totally relate. And uh, I'm just making up for the generations that went empty of female preachers right now. I'm filling up all the space. And uh, I would, I mean, I had this invisible husband that was wildly perfect. Did anybody else have one of those? And he went to work for the day. And I, I was just in awe of how much he loved me. Like, you exist to love me. And we had these fake babies. And they were perfect. I never had a night of interrupted sleep. They, they were just, they were my fairy tale. And I, I practiced every day my dream, my deepest dream. I, I want to create a family. I want to live in a family. It was wired within me. And then, you know, my, my husband is literally my abundantly above and beyond all I could ever ask, imagine, or think. But, you know, what, what I am experiencing now, almost 18 years into covenant, that my marriage is, is the richest gift I have ever been given, genuinely. He, he's not even in the room, so you know this is true. And uh, he, he, is, he is a promise fulfilled to little tiny me um, that I treasure with my whole heart. And because my deepest dream was to be a mom and a wife, it is my greatest passion that the message of the gospel is first lived through my marriage and my family. And it will never come, even though I'm going to preach the gospel until the day I die, the, the most important message to me is the one my marriage preaches. It's the one that you feel in my home and the culture that's created in my home. Because the gospel will never first be about something we can articulate. The gospel will always be, did I become the nature of Jesus? And it's first manifested in your neighbor. And there's not a neighbor closer than the person in your bed. 
And, and there's not a person that pushes out everything that couldn't come out when he was invisible. You know? I, I was never impatient with my invisible husband. I mean, it, it, it was wonderful. And so, so then you, you start living in your promise. And, and if you don't start walking that promise up as an offering before the Lord, we will start missing the promised land we're living in right now. And we'll constantly be looking ahead to what's the next thing God promised me? What's the next covenant that's supposed to play out? Where are we going after this? And we'll miss. You spend 18 years of your life dreaming about what you're living in right now. And it's painful to become the, the type of person that can actually delight and love and enjoy what he's given us in this moment. So there, there are all over this room promises fulfilled that are waiting to take a three days journey up the mountain because we can't truly live in the abundantly above and beyond more than the stars in the sky if we are the biggest person perpetuating that covenant. And you know, anybody become a parent and realize very quickly, if I am the biggest person in this relationship I'm going to live in a constant panic attack, <laughs> you know, because you get pregnant and suddenly the entire world becomes a hazard, a choking hazard, um, a creepy person hazard, strangers in grocery stores are touching my baby, what, what are you doing, you know, and the love, the fierce love that wells up in your heart will destroy you if you are the biggest person in that child's life. And I, I remember, you know, that basically learning that, that motherhood, stewarding promises fulfilled, is rising every morning and making an altar to give to God what I love most. And if we're not proactively giving to God what we love most, we will not be able to delight in a covenant fulfilled, in a promise fulfilled. And, you know, I remember uh, <laughs> navigating with uh, one of my daughters, you know, we had moved across the country and said goodbye to the only life they had ever loved and known. And it, it was a grieving process. It was, it was right to feel pain, right? If you leave a place that you have invested years of history and don't feel pain, you didn't put your whole heart on the table. You know, a sign that you put your whole heart on the table is it is painful when you feel a disconnect. And so she was just gushing out all this pain at, at bedtime one night. And uh, I was just yeah, this is terrible. This pain is terrible. I'm with you. And I don't think any of us are going to survive. And I have nothing wise or holy to say right now. And I, I just kind of prayed a prayer that I didn't believe and gave her a little hug. And I was worried. I felt so anxious. I'm like, this is ruining their whole childhood. Their lives are over, you know, and before you know it, you've buried every promise God had ever made you, and it's the end. And 
as I'm walking out the door, I hear the Holy Spirit. I believe in her ability to process pain. Do you? And I thought, oh my gosh, I've been treating her like she's so fragile. Like she, she, she's gonna crack under pressure. And I felt the perspective of a perfect father. And he saw her as a giant, as more than an overcomer, as someone who is wired to process pain, as someone who is, is bigger than a grasshopper on the inside, as someone who is destined to take land in ever-increasing measures for the rest of her life, that she is not small, she is giant on the inside. And, you know, the starting place in the kingdom of heaven is a culture of honor. And that means we are bumping into each other in rough seasons of our life, in tough processes where God is asking you to do things that are beyond your understanding. They don't make sense. And we look eyeball to eyeball. You have what it takes. You have what it takes. And sometimes in love, we've been taught love steps in and does it for you. But in a culture of honor, we would never violate the truth that you have what it takes to take your land. And we stand shoulder to shoulder and say, you've got this. You're the type of person that can walk up that hill in three days and let go of what he's asking you to let go. I believe in you. And the I believe in you message that Jesus Christ first started trumpeting was wildly offensive to all of us that ever heard it. You know, did anybody else grow up in a pastoral model where you thought, well, someone else is in charge of fixing me. Someone else is in charge of my problems. You, you mean I'm in charge of my problems? No. And, and, you know, Jesus himself, anybody ever seen him just standing next to you cheering wildly? Like, the rescue mission is over. It already happened like 2,000 years ago. The Messiah came and rescued humanity and put the same spirit that resurrected Christ on your insides. And now he will never violate the fact that you are a temple of the resurrected nature of a living God. You have what it takes to navigate this season. He believes in you. We believe in you. You've got this. And, you know, there's, there's no description of what was going on on Abraham's insides for three days as he walked his son up, up the hill. And, you know, let, let's read on. So the next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood to build a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place where God had told him to go. On the third day of the journey, Abraham saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the young men. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there and then we will come right back. Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the knife and the fire. And the two of them went on together. Isaac said, Father, 
Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the wood and the fire, said the boy, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? God will provide a lamb, my son, Abraham answered. And they both went on together. And, you know, if you can just imagine the trust manifesting between Isaac and Abraham in this scenario. Like, the story goes on where Isaac is actually on the altar. And when they arrived to the place where God had told Abraham to go, he built an altar and placed the wood on it. Then he tied Isaac up and laid him on the altar over the wood. So Isaac is actually strapped on the altar, completely trusting Abraham. You know, this in itself is a miracle that he, he wasn't like, yeah, no, I'm not climbing up there. What? I know what happens on altars, you know? And, and Abraham, the story starts out, Abraham loved his son. That there was a connection happening between Abraham and Isaac that Isaac actually surrendered to his father and trusted that his, Abraham's intention towards him was good. And Abraham's intention towards him was kind. And, you know, this is such an obvious prophetic picture of what Jesus would come and do. That he would be the son that would put the wood on his shoulders and so happily yield to a father who's good and kind and be hung on a hill to provide a sacrifice for all humans for the rest of history to know what it feels like to have a father you can trust to know what it feels like if the father told me to get on the altar I yield I surrender and you know if you flip to Hebrews 11, thankfully the Bible interprets itself and we get a little snippet of what Abraham was actually thinking when God asked him to do this. And in verse 17, in the hall of faith, where Abraham lands his spot for all of eternity, um, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, though God had promised him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham assumed that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. Abraham was assuming things about the nature of God. He was assuming, I can trust him so wholeheartedly that I know I'm about to see a miracle. My son is about to be resurrected from, there is no record of a resurrection in human history yet. And Abraham, in his assumptions before the nature of God, so trusted God's heart and his promise that he was making assumptions for three days all the way up the hill, carrying the hand of the son that he loved with his whole heart. I'm about to watch you be raised from the dead, boy. I'm about to watch the faithfulness of God resurrect you. And, you know, when, when God asks us to lay things on the altar that we deeply love, we are always making assumptions about why. And 
the greatest thing we will ever do with our faith is assume that he's good is assume that he's kind, is to assume that this outcome is going to be abundantly above and beyond whatever I could write in my own story. This is about to get outrageously miraculous. God is about to show up and blow my mind because he does not fail. Listen, the nature of God will always be the bigger emphasis than the promise we're given. Because a promise in your life only has weight because you trust the person giving it. Has anybody ever received those checks in the mail for like $2.5 billion? <laughs> and they're like, call this number and, and we'll wire the money into your account. Nobody's like, throws a party, invites all your friends over. I got a check in the mail today. No, because nobody trusts there's $2.5 billion coming your way. Because it's a stranger. A stranger is trying to con you. We all know that, right? So a promise, the, the power in a promise is not the promise itself. The, the power in a promise is who gave it. Who said that? Who said that? Because all the weight, all the trust is not in us thinking it's going to play out in this way. All the promise, all the trust is in the nature of the one who gave it. So even when the story takes a twist and a turn and a dip dive, there's one reliable source that never changes in my story. And it's the goodness of God. And if we show up to learn about the nature of God based on what he's asking us to do, we'll come up with weird conclusions because this is weird stuff. Being asked to offer up what you love most that God himself gave you. And when we step into our life and we start dissecting our story to learn what is God like? What is his nature like? We, we will always come out short on the other side. We start in the goodness of God. We start in the kindness of God before we step into any circumstance, before we step into anything he's asking us to do. We live and breathe and have our being from our home in his nature. And then we show up on a three days journey and go do whatever he's asking us to do. Because I know without absolute certainty, this can only end astonishing. This can only end in something magnificent because he never changes. And, you know, when, when God's heart is so moved, if you look at the rest of the story, and, you know, he dramatically is like, Abraham, Abraham, put the knife down, you know? And you're like, whoa, whoa, I'm listening. Change of plans, change of plans. There's, you know, there's times where there's radical change of plans that you didn't see coming. And, and God says to his friend, since you didn't withhold from me your one and only son that you love, I know you love me. And, you know, it, it is the most beautiful prophetic picture of what we live in every single day that we actually get to step into intimacy 
that Abraham's ceiling becomes our floor because of the gospel. And we get to show up and look into the eyes of a father and say, you didn't withhold your one and only son from me. What else wouldn't you do for me? That he didn't withhold walking the person of Jesus up a hill to give his life that we could know that kind of love. And the starting point in your story, the middle point in your story, the finishing point in your story will never be what you put on the altar for Jesus. It will always be what Jesus put on the altar for you. And, you know, Jesus came making these outrageous claims of the cost to be a disciple. There's this little tiny gate. And it takes letting go of everything, becoming a living sacrifice to get into the kingdom. And he made these outrageous statements. If you want to follow me, you're not going to be able to love a mother, a father, a son, or a daughter more than me. And, and you know, the only reason he could put that kind of demand on his disciples is because he first put it on himself. He became our living sacrifice. He left everything to become your living sacrifice so that nothing and no one would ever own you. And if it's, if it's hard to put on the altar, you know, the worst thing to do is, is to beat yourself up about that. When something is hard to put on the altar, we need another understanding of what Jesus gave up for us. Because when we, when we stand before his perfect love put on display. This thing wells up in us. What else, what else can I give you? What, what else can I walk up the hill? What else, what else could I lay down in this love for you? Because I, I have fallen in love with the freedom of hanging on to nothing. And we truly cannot steward any promise fulfilled if we're hanging on to it. You cannot steward what you are afraid to lose. And if you are afraid in, in your heart to lose something, a person, a promotion, a job, finances, and we all know what that feels like to have a clenched fist. It's stressful, it's anxious, it's pressure. And it's the kindness of the Lord that invites us to, could you put it on the altar? Could you let someone bigger than you take the pressure of this promise needing to be fulfilled? And when Abraham could fully surrender Isaac, the pressure was no longer on him to make sure that covenant made it all the way to us. And God was making sure Abraham knew, I'll be the one in charge of making sure this happens. And when you, when you start to feel the weight of, of your prophetic words, the weight of what you're walking in right now, and, and it starts to feel heavy, that's when Jesus makes the call. Come, come to me. 
come to me if you're heavy. Come to me if you have a burden. I intended to carry it all. And so if we could just stand up. You know, when you're in love, Abraham modeled this so beautifully. He loved God. He believed God. He was making assumptions about God on his invisible insides without even having the Holy Spirit inside of him to help. How much more are, are, are we able to make assumptions on our insides in the middle of mystery that manifests we trust a good God? We trust a kind God. We trust an outrageous God. Nothing is impossible for him. And when you're in love, we're proactively looking. What, what can I put on the altar for you? I, I want to do it before you ask. It, it's my greatest joy to get up early and walk up that hill. Because I love the look in your eye when you know that I know that you know, that I know. I have no other agenda with my life than to be a living sacrifice. Because I saw the way you left everything to come to earth to show me I'll be your living sacrifice. I'll be everything you need. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'll never leave you. I'll always provide for you. I'll make sure your every need is looked after. So the greatest gift we can give anyone in our life that we love, the greatest gift we can give a city that we love is to put them on the altar, strap them up, and tell Jesus, you're worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all. V, could you just lead us out in one song as we close, just from right there, a cappella? Let's just lift up a shout for a good God, a kind God. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. We'll be your living sacrifice. You're worthy of it all. We have no other agenda. We live for you. We breathe for you. You're worthy of it all, Jesus. We love you. And everybody says, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.